Good afternoon, Grace Fellowship Church. It is a real joy and privilege to be here. I know that Pastor Andy is not here today, but I did want to just take a moment to acknowledge and express my appreciation to him for extending this invite to come and, and bring the Word of God today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to read for us the entire chapter, and then I will open us in prayer, and then we will dive into this message. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord Yahweh removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in this time you would open your word to us. And you would open us to your word. Holy Spirit, would you take your sword and wield it powerfully upon us in this time to correct us, to rebuke us, to challenge us, to encourage us, to transform us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. He was a man... Of royal roots, 
raised on the luxurious pleasures of palace life and yet trained from childhood to fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Wise beyond his years, he became the co-ruler of the kingdom alongside his father at the ripe age of 16 when most boys today who are 16 would be obsessing over how to ask that pretty girl out to the school dance. He was a man adored by the people, respected and held in the highest regard, and yet humbly dependent upon his God. And when his father passed away, the throne became his entirely, and under his royal reign, the kingdom enjoyed an unparalleled degree of prosperity and dominion. The length of his leadership spanned some 52 years during which time he both conquered enemy kingdoms and constructed impressive settlements. His well-trained army was a force to be reckoned with and his reputation as Judah's beloved king spread both far and wide. And yet we all know that any man who tries to fly too close to the sun He will fall. It is not for you, they cried out all 81 of the priests. It is not for you, O King Uzziah, to burn incense to Yahweh. This duty belongs to the sons of Aaron. You see, at at the peak of his glorious rule, King Uzziah's heart grew proud. And this arrogant sense of entitlement drove him to try and do that which Yahweh had reserved for the priesthood alone. He sought to enter into the temple, that sacred abode, against the anguished pleas of the priests, and he unlawfully attempted to burn incense upon the holy altar. The result, God struck King Uzziah down with leprosy. And as one rendered incurably unclean, Uzziah was now stripped of his kingship, cast out from his kingdom, and doomed to spend the rest of his life living as a miserable recluse in utter isolation. Thus a man who had begun with such promise, whose throne had soared to such heights of grandeur, saw his life come to an end on a most tragic note. And we can just imagine how the people of Judah must have felt. The best thing, perhaps, that had happened for this nation in years, decades maybe, suddenly ripped away in the most brutal fashions. And after half a century of flourishing under King Uzziah's rule, here they were now thrust into a season of Decline, darkness, despair, and discouragement. Friends, it is against this backdrop of national catastrophe, as recounted in a text such as Second Chronicles 26, that we step into Isaiah 6, where the prophet recalls in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And the main point of my sermon this morning is this, only a vision of God's glory and grace 
will be able to sustain faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Only a vision of God's glory and God's grace will be able to sustain faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. And I want to unpack this idea by way of three points drawn from our text. The first point is Isaiah's exposure to God's glory. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 4. Isaiah's exposure to God's glory. Secondly, Isaiah's experience of God's grace. We're going to see that in verses 5 through 7. Isaiah's experience of God's grace. And then thirdly and lastly, Isaiah's call to faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Isaiah's call to faithfulness in the midst of difficulty, and that will be found in verses 8 through 13. So let's take these three points in turn. Firstly, Isaiah's exposure to God's glory. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. Here, the prophet employs royal imagery. Royal imagery to, to give us a window into this breathtaking vision that he has received. He describes God as a king sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the point here is clear. This king is not just any monarch. He's not merely one king among equals. No, his is an unrivaled reign. Indeed, isn't it striking that in verse 1 we find this scene unfolding of all places in a temple. A temple, the, the, the very temple that, that King Uzziah had, had been punished for trying to enter here. We find another king, a greater king, a far superior king, whose very throne room is that temple. Furthermore, the, the regal splendor of this king is so unique, so transcendent, so incomparable, that, that all Isaiah can do in this text is resort to using common, everyday images in an attempt to offer but a faint glimpse of this king's glory. That's why Isaiah says in verse 1 uh, that, that the train of his robe filled the temple. He, he draws upon the familiar visual of a long flowing robe to describe this king's glory. And then later on at the end of verse 4, he, he uses the everyday image of, of smoke, smoke filling the temple, the house. These images of smoke and, and robes are, are visual aids for Isaiah's readers. They would have been well acquainted with these kinds of images. And it, it highlights the widespread expansiveness of the divine king's glory. His glory is so pervasive that not a single inch of the temple, indeed not a single inch of the whole earth, remains untouched by it. But not only does Isaiah describe the Lord upon the throne, he also talks about what's happening around the throne. He does that in verse 2, where he introduces us to these six-winged seraphim. Now, the word for seraphim, it comes from a Hebrew verb, which simply means to burn. That's what these seraphim are. They are these brightly burning, otherworldly creatures. And as they, as they go about flying to and fro... Verses 3 and 4 tell us that, that one called to another with such intensity of force that the very foundations of the thresholds 
shook at the voice of him who called. We can practically picture Isaiah standing there, dumbfounded by this awe-inspiring spectacle, can't we? His eyes blinded by the radiant presence of innumerable seraphim, shining forth with the brilliance of a thousand splendid suns, his ears ringing as their voices thunder and echo and reverberate all throughout the temple, causing everything to tremble as if an enormous earthquake were taking place. His mind pulsing as this temple is filled with smoke, his senses being overwhelmed and overloaded by everything, this endless sea of seraphim surrounding him, surrounding this throne. And yet, as glorious as they are to behold, they themselves pale in comparison to the glory of the one enthroned on high. And we know this because verse 2 continues on and tells us that these seraphim, with, with two wings, they're covering their faces. With two wings, they're, they're covering their feet. And, and with two wings, they're, they're flying around. You see, these seraphim, they were assuming a posture of humility before their creator. Because they, even they, understood that no matter how beautiful and majestic and glorious and awe-inspiring they may be, their glory is nothing compared to that of the Lord's. They are unworthy creatures in the presence of an infinitely worthy king. But not only that, notice with me what the seraphim are doing in verse 3. They are declaring not, not once, not twice, but three times, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it's interesting to observe that these seraphim in verse 3 are not calling to Yahweh. They're not calling to Yahweh. They're, they're calling to one another. That's what verse 3 says. It says, and one called to another. Isn't that a little odd? Why would these seraphim be calling to one another? Is it, like, is it as if they're trying to inform certain seraphim of certain things they're not already aware of? I think they all know full well just how holy this king is. They're there in the temple. They, they know full well that, that this Lord on the throne is infinitely glorious. So, so why, would they, why would they feel the need to call to each other? Not to inform one another, but because they can't help it. They can't help but call out to one another. I mean, don't, don't we do the same thing? For instance, sports. Right? When we watch our favorite sports team and it's coming down to the end of the game and the, 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 the score is tied and our team, whether it's basketball or football or baseball or soccer, whatever it may be, our team that we're rooting for scores the winning goal or shot with time expiring. And we're watching that. 
what are we going to do? We're going to pick up our phones, call a friend, text a buddy, post something on social media. Why? Because we can't help but call out to one another, call out to fellow sports fans, not to inform them of something they don't already know. If, if they're fans of that same team, they were probably watching that same game and they probably saw that same game winner. Not to inform them because we can't help it. It's a, it's a natural overflow, an instinctive overflow of our enthusiasm at what we have just witnessed. That's what these seraphim are doing. They are so captivated, so riveted by the glory of this divine king that they can't help but call out to one another in awe. Friends, do you realize that the same infinitely glorious, thrice holy Lord of hosts described in this text is the one in whose presence we are gathered this afternoon. He is the same God whom we just minutes ago were singing songs to and praying to. The same God who even now is speaking to us through his very word. I can't help but wonder if perhaps there are some here today who have forgotten that our God is a glorious God, that our God is Yahweh of hosts, that our God is holy, holy, holy. In 1994, almost three decades ago, a Christian writer by the name of David Wells penned these timely words, words which I believe ring just as true today as they had almost 30 years ago. He writes this, quote, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies." That is weightlessness, end quote. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, is your God glorious or is he weightless? When was the last time that, that your heart was genuinely gripped by a sense of marvel at the Lord's resplendent majesty? When was the last time that his beauty and holiness and magnificence left you utterly speechless and captivated? Like Isaiah, we must recapture and be captured by a vision of God's glory. Isaiah was exposed to God's glory, verses 
1 through 4. We move on to point number two, Isaiah's experience of God's grace. Isaiah's experience of God's grace, verses 5 through 7. In contrast to the seraphim who are calling out to one another in amazement at God's glory, Isaiah's response is the complete opposite. Not one of wonder, but, but sheer horror, sheer terror, because Isaiah knew that he was a sinful man standing in the presence of a holy God. And that's why he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Isaiah knew that every lie he'd ever uttered, every word of gossip or slander, every curse, every profanity, every hurtful, unloving comment to pass through his lips It was all laid out there completely bare before this omniscient king. You see, it is only when we see God for who he truly is, a king who is holy, a king who is righteous, a king who is pure, that we will then see ourselves for what we truly are, unclean, guilty sinners. This is how one theologian has put it. He writes, quote, Man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. So long as we do not look beyond the earth and are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, We address ourselves in the most flattering terms. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God, to reflect what kind of being he is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will, be, will disgust us by its extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. Friends, when we find ourselves face to face with a thrice holy Lord, we will realize that we have no arguments No excuses, no defense by which we might protest the inevitable sentence of just condemnation that stands against our sin-stained souls. We will realize that we have no, no shield by which to protect us from the piercing arrows of judgment that God has aimed at our wicked hearts. We will realize that we have no no rope by which to climb out of the, the blazing pit of eternal destruction that lies in wait for all who have refused to bend the knee to their creator. Left to ourselves, left to our own efforts, left to our own means, none of us has even the slightest hope of salvation. Like Isaiah, we are all unclean. Like Isaiah, we are all lost. The prophet's woe rightfully falls upon each person in this 
room. And yet look at what God does in verses 6 and 7. Instead of visiting Isaiah with his righteous wrath, God appoints one of the seraphim to fly to Isaiah with this burning coal in his hand taken from the altar. And just as a person might sterilize an unclean needle by by putting it through a small flickering flame, so here Isaiah's unclean lips are spiritually sterilized as this seraph presses the coal upon his mouth. That's why in verse 7, the seraph tells Isaiah, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Here we have a picture of a guilty sinner forgiven, a filthy man made clean, a, a wicked rebel reconciled. What we have here is a portrait of divine saving grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was, was blind, but now I see. Maybe for some here this morning, the sound of God's grace has lost its sweetness. Perhaps if you're like me, you have a proclivity to become so overly familiar with God's grace that, that you start to take it for granted. You start to take it for granted such that it no longer leaves you amazed as it may have once done. Brothers and sisters, if, if that is your experience, your struggle, your tendency, I would urge you today to to plead with God in prayer. Ask him to soften your hearts, to renew your affections, to, to grant you a fresh sense of astonishment and joy at his amazing grace. I can assure you that this is not a request that God will deny. This is precisely the sort of prayer he, he delights to grant to his children. Perhaps there are others here today who have yet to receive God's amazing grace. Maybe you're here today and, and you are not a Christian. You are not a believer. The Bible tells us that there is only one way to be forgiven, only one way to receive God's saving grace, and that is through trusting in the shed blood of Jesus. John 1 Verses 16 and 17 say this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If you want to experience God's amazing grace like Isaiah, it comes through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus, Jesus Christ. Have you experienced God's Saving grace. Have you had your guilt taken away, your sins forgiven, just like the prophet here in Isaiah 6? If not, then there is nothing more important, nothing more 
urgent, nothing more loving that I could say to you from this pulpit than this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today for the salvation of your soul. Isaiah was exposed to God's holiness. Isaiah experienced God's grace. And we come now to my third point, Isaiah's call to faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Verses 8 through 13. After seven verses of buildup, the prophet's vision reaches its victorious climax. Isaiah has beheld God's glory. He has received God's grace. And now we come to this triumphant moment in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, after all that he has just witnessed, steps forward, brimming with excitement, barely able to contain himself. And he boldly declares, Here am I. Send me. But look at what the Lord instructs Isaiah to do. Verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn and be healed. Here you have the prophet Isaiah, first day on the job as a newly appointed prophet of the Lord. He's been exposed to God's glory. He's, been, he's experienced God's grace. It's, it's time. He's ready. It's, it's time to go and do big things for God. And this is the task that God gives him. Go and preach to a people who are going to hear but not understand, who are going to see but not perceive, go and minister to a people who are going to refuse to listen to your message. Isaiah's mission is to minister to a people who are not only going to ignore and reject him, but who are going to grow increasingly callous towards God's message. It seems a bit anticlimactic, don't you think? Maybe that's why Isaiah ventures to ask this question in verse 11. Then I said, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long are your people going to hear but not understand? How long are they... Are they going to see but not perceive? How long are they going to have dull hearts and heavy ears and blind eyes? A couple weeks, a few months, perhaps, maybe even several years. Several years, I, that's going to be hard. I, I think I can do that. Several years, maybe. Look at what God says in response. Verse 11, and he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Do you realize what God is telling Isaiah here? He's saying that the people of Judah 
are going to continue down this stubborn path of sinful rebellion to the point where God brings judgment upon them, to the point where cities are going to lie waste without inhabitant, to the point where Yahweh is going to remove people far away. This is the sort of ministry that God has called his prophet to, a ministry marked by discouragement, a ministry marked by fruitlessness, a ministry in which the end result seems by all accounts to seem uh, to be one of utter failure. And the big question that should be running through our minds as we're reading this text is this. What on earth kept Isaiah going? What was it that sustained this prophet through a ministry of discouragement and difficulty and fruitlessness? What was the key that preserved his faithfulness, and sustained him as he carried out this mission. The only possible answer to that question is the vision that Isaiah saw in verses 1 through 7. You see, Isaiah's vision of God's glory and grace not only spurred him on in verse 8 to say, Here am I, send me, but it also sustained and upheld him in carrying out this commission laid out in verses 9 through 12. This vision not only captivated Isaiah's imagination in the midst of a national catastrophe following King Uzziah's death, it also carried him through a prolonged season of national apostasy as the people of Judah continued down a path of idolatry and sin and rebellion against God. These two things, God's glory, his splendor, his breathtaking majesty and holiness, as well as God's grace, his amazing, atoning, cleansing, saving grace, these two realities were so powerfully impressed upon Isaiah's heart that in the severest of afflictions, in the lowest of valleys, in the darkest of disappointments, in the heaviest of discouragements, he was supernaturally strengthened and brought through. Friends, only a vision of God's glory and grace will be able to sustain faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Now, I'll be the first to concede that I'm not a member here at Grace Fellowship Church. I don't regularly worship at this church. Most of you, I have never met before, so, so I don't know the particular circumstances that each of you may be going through at this moment in your lives. But I'm willing to bet that there are at least some here this afternoon struggling through a season of difficulty, struggling through a season of discouragement, Perhaps you have loved ones who do not know Jesus. Parents, siblings, children, relatives, friends, neighbors, and for years you have been on your knees praying for them, asking and pleading with the Lord to save their soul. 
seizing any opportunity that comes your way to share Christ with them, to share the gospel with them, to invite them out to church. And yet despite your best efforts, your most earnest intentions, there seems to be absolutely no fruit to show for it. And you're discouraged. Maybe for for others here today, uh, you find yourself dealing with a specific situation right now in which it is just utterly draining. Maybe it's a, a challenging coworker at your job. Maybe it's financial hardships that your family is facing. Maybe it's relational strains, marital difficulties, a chronic health condition that has, that has turned even the most minute of daily tasks into an obstacle. Perhaps it's a, perhaps it's a terminal illness that has flipped your life upside down. And there are some mornings where you, you wake up and the last thing that you want to do is get out of bed. Brothers and sisters, I may not know what you're going through, but I know this. If you find yourself overwhelmed by by one wave of adversity after another, the means to keep pressing on faithfully is not, it is not by simply mustering up more willpower and pushing on through by your own strength. That will only get you so far. No, what what you need, what I need, what, what we need is a renewed vision of God's glory and grace. And the same goes for this church as a whole, for Grace Fellowship Church in the life of every in the life and ministry of every church, not just this church, but but every church, there, there are going to be ups and downs, there are going to be ebbs and flows, there are going to be seasons of great fruitfulness and seasons of discouraging dryness. And when those challenging circumstances and seasons come, this church needs to remember that only a vision of God's glory and grace will be able to sustain this church's faithfulness in the midst of difficulty. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Jonathan, we get it. We understand what you're saying. It makes sense, but, but there's only one problem. There's only one problem. Isaiah actually had a vision of the Lord. Never in my life have I ever seen anything remotely close to what we find here described in Isaiah chapter 6. And it's true, none of us have, have experienced what the prophet was privileged to witness here. But I would propose that we have experienced something greater. We have experienced something better. You see, at the, at the end of Isaiah 6, following upon the heels of God's prediction of judgment and destruction and desolation, we are left with, with a tiny glimmer of hope. Look at, look at verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God compares what remains of the kingdom of Judah to to a tree that has been cut down, leaving behind only this, this stump. 
And notice how the stump is described. It's described as the holy seed. Now, now who or what is this promised holy seed? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And look with me at verses 1 and 2. Because here the prophet is going to pick back up on this seed and tree and stump related imagery. He says this, Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This holy seed is going to be a branch that will sprout forth from the line of Jesse. He will be a son of David one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will rest, one who, according to verses 3 through 5, if we continue reading Isaiah 11, uh, this, this seed is going to judge with righteousness and equity. His delight is going to be in the fear of the Lord. Friends, the promised holy seed anticipated at the end of Isaiah 6 is none other than Jesus. You see, Isaiah 6 began with the death of one king, but it concludes with the hope of an even greater king. In Isaiah 6, the prophet beholds a vision of God's divine glory and grace, but in the gospel, Jesus comes as the God-man, and he perfectly embodies this same glory and grace in human flesh. In Isaiah 6, the prophet sees the Lord dwelling in the temple in unapproachable light. But in the gospel, this same Lord steps down from his throne in order to take on human flesh and enter a world engulfed in darkness to dwell amongst us. In Isaiah 6, the prophet witnesses the king high and lifted up on the throne. But in the gospel, this same king veils his regal glory, assumes the form of a servant, and is high and lifted up, not on the throne, but on a cross. In Isaiah 6, God sends one of the seraphim to Isaiah to take this burning coal and press it upon his lips, purging him of his sins. But in the gospel, the father doesn't send one of his seraphim, he sends his only begotten son so that he himself might bear the father's wrath against our sins and we might be purged of our sins. In Isaiah 6, a prophet is commissioned to go and preach the word to a people who are going to reject him and who are going to ignore him. But in the gospel, Jesus, the ultimate prophet, the word incarnate, takes this commission upon himself. He goes, he preaches, he is rejected, 
And ultimately, he is crucified so that we might be accepted by the Father. It's true, we, we've never seen a vision like that described in Isaiah 6. But if we have tasted and seen the goodness of God and the gospel of Jesus, then we have beheld God's glory and grace in an even deeper and more profound way than even the prophet. So, Grace Fellowship Church, when difficult circumstances arise, when a season of dryness and fruitlessness seems to come along, when you find your hearts languishing under the weight of discouragement and depression and despair, you need look no further than the gospel of the glory and grace of our crucified and risen Lord, Jesus Christ, to find all that you need to remain faithful in the midst of difficulty. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, would you cause us to look anew to our Lord and Savior Jesus and to behold your glory and grace in the gospel so that we might be strengthened to keep living for you no matter what circumstances come our way. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.